going down in the depths, a place that he thought he wanted to be and fleeing from the presence of the Lord. But as he's going deeper in the sea, in the belly of this fish, he's quickly realizing that's not at all uh, where he wants to be. And we see him through these prayers expressing emotions. We see him quoting different psalms uh, that likely he had hidden in his heart. Again, a reminder to us of the value of having the word hidden in our heart. We looked at Jonah as he's reflecting on his deep despair, and we see that God's mercies to Jonah and to us are new every morning. We contrasted Jonah's despair that with that of the Apostle Paul, who himself said that he was in despair even to the point of death, but that the Lord was teaching him not to trust in himself, but in God, who raises the dead, to trust him who still delivers. And this is what God was teaching Jonah. This is what God desires to teach us, to yield, to surrender, to understand when he leads, calls, and directs us, he is doing it for our good, for a purpose, that we might know him, that we might draw nearer to him, that we might experience and know the depths of his love. So let's go to Jonah 2, and we'll pick up in verse 7. We'll read 7 through 9. We got through the thoughts on verse 7 last week, but we'll just read it as it's part of our thoughts uh, in this section of 7 through 9. So in Jonah 2, verse 7, we read, When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. And we can see here Jonah growing in confidence, growing in understanding, growing in appreciation for who the Lord is and what he means to him and what he's about to do for him. But we'll pick up in verse 8 here where Jonah says, Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. The thought of worthless here is desolate, useless, or vain. Idols has the thought of emptiness or vanity. So almost a double negative there if you read it as vain vanity. These were worthless. They were no good. And I think we see that illustrated for us in the book of Habakkuk. Let's turn there in chapter 2. Here in Habakkuk we read in verse 18, What profit is the image that its maker should carve it? The molded image, a teacher of lies, that the maker of its mold should trust in it, to make mute idols. Woe to him who says to the wood, Awake, to silent stone, arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, yet in it there is no breath at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple, let all the earth keep silence before him. Again, you just see the the foolishness, the worthlessness of idols here. The example that Habakkuk gives is a molded image, a teacher of lies, the maker who molds it and then trusts in it. Again, how foolish that is to think that we could create something, carve something, form something, and then trust in it to deliver us, the one who created it. That makes no sense, but still, even today, there are those who believe that. Things made with human hands and then worshipped is simply foolish. Jeremiah asked, will a man make gods for himself which are not gods? We cannot make gods for ourselves that, that warrant any trust, that will bring any deliverance, that will give us any peace. They are unable to do anything. They cannot help, comfort, affect change. They have no breath, as Habakkuk says. They are mute. In the ship, the sailors realize this. We remember back to them all calling on their own gods, and they were silent. The sailors realized that how 
foolish it was to call out in the midst of a storm to a silent, unreal God, if you will. And again, we understand that Jonah had the opportunity to talk to those sailors. Uh, when he was awakened from his sleep in the ship, they asked, who are you? What are you doing here? What God do you serve? And Jonah clearly proclaimed back in verse 10 of chapter 1, I'm a Hebrew who served the one true God. We don't have the whole narrative of that interchange between Jonah and the sailors, but apparently what he told them was enough for them to have understanding of who the Almighty God was. And again, reflecting back to chapter 1, verse 16, you'll see them coming to a knowledge of a place of fear and reverence for the God that Jonah served. Again, stark contrast to the gods that they were praying to, to the God they saw work mightily when they cast Jonah into the sea. Jonah was pointing out to them and remembering for himself how worthless and foolish it is to look to idols. Jeremiah Jeremiah points to this as well as the foolishness of turning away from the one true God. And in his book, he says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And again, the contrast there is abandoning something that's so rich, so full, so abundant, for something that's broken and dry. And that's what certainly these sailors had done. This is what Jonah had done in his own heart, was abandoning the fountain of living water to go out on his own, to chase his own desires, mercies, his own emotion. Again, this word idol, as I mentioned a minute ago, has a thought of emptiness or vanity. Figuratively, it can be something that's transitory, something that's unsatisfactory. And again, in our minds, I think that image pops up of some statue or creature or figure or something like that, but it doesn't necessarily have to be a thing, an object. An idol can be anything in our lives that takes a position before the Lord or takes our focus, our trust, our attention away from him. Just in the world today, we see many idols that are not things, statues that are on mantles, but they are money, position, power, prestige, whatever it may be, can be an idol for anybody that they are seeking after, they are desiring more of that's outside the will of the Lord. Again, for the the child of God, for us, it's those cares of life that might choke out the word, that might choke out the fruit that could be borne by that. In Jonah's case, it was choosing his own desires instead of the Lord's will, going a different direction, going, in fact, the exact opposite direction of where God told him to be. And that choice was now dragging him literally to the depths of the earth in the belly of that fish. Jonah goes on to say, when they do this, when people forsake the living God for idols, they forsake his loving kindness, they forsake mercy. The emphasis here appears to be on the abandoning of the source of confidence, the Lord, and not experiencing his faithfulness or love because we are choosing our own way. David says, their sorrows be multiplied who hasten after another God. Again, that is what Jonah here, his sorrows are being multiplied Maybe not because he's chasing another God, but he's fleeing from the run true God. One said it this way. It said, estrangement from God produces estrangement from happiness. How true that is when we choose not to walk with God, not to yield, not to surrender to him and his ways. We forsake mercy. We forsake his kindness. We forsake happiness. That joy that we have in knowing the Lord, in doing his will, even in things that aren't pleasant as Jonah was faced here in his life. He was going, or he was called initially to do something 
that was not pleasant to him to go and to preach to the enemies of his people. Again, Jonah is coming around in his prayer. He's coming to an understanding. He's recognizing in his own life. Again, in our own lives, as we open ourselves up to the examination of the Lord, the Spirit will convict us. When we're not walking in the way that we should be walking, we're not living the way we should be living, when we're not doing what the Lord would have us to do, if we open ourselves up to the searching and examining of the Holy Spirit, it will bring conviction. And again, a different reality for Jonah here in his life in the Old Testament, but we see a conviction coming, an understanding growing in Jonah's heart and in his life that he was wrong, that he was in a place that had kept him from the happiness, the joy, the peace that God wanted for him. He's coming to a place of understanding and giving thanks uh, to God, to that fountain of living water. In verse 9 of that opening text, it says, I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. Again, Jonah was still in the belly of that fish, in a dark place. To me, again, this speaks to who Jonah was. It's easy just to pile on Jonah and show and point at all of his failures, and that's easy and, and somewhat, I don't know what the right word, it's not fun, but it's certainly self-gratifying to say, well, Jonah's a failure, I would never do that. What a, what a loser Jonah is. But to think again here in the depths of the belly of that fish, in the depths of the sea, he came to a place of thanksgiving. It didn't change his immediate circumstances, and to me that's a testimony. It's a confidence of knowing who the Lord is, that in our failures, in our darkness, when we come to that place in our hearts and recognize who the one true God is, remember who God is, and what he wants to do for us, what he desires for us, we can give thanks, because God's promises are sure, and that should cause us to give thanksgiving, even when our circumstances may tell us otherwise. I thought of Jehoshaphat when he was getting ready to go to battle with Moab and Ammon. He appointed singers. And where did he place those singers? He placed them in front of the army before the battle. That praise came before the battle that would soon ensue. Again, that's a place of confidence and of assurance of knowing this isn't pleasant. I, I don't, well, maybe people liked battle. Maybe those who are in that, that field like the challenge of battle or what you, you get to exercise that training. But there's no pleasantries in battle and war. But Jehoshaphat understood the Lord is leading in this direction and he's going to praise the Lord regardless of what may come. In Psalms 107, we read, Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Let them sacrifice the sacrifices of thanksgiving and declare his works with rejoicing. God is not simply seeking just to be praised for his ego's sake. That is something that is completely of our flesh, of man's desires. We all like to be thanked for things. We all like to be recognized for our work and for our accomplishment. Again, that's just something that's, that's natural, but it's not something that we can long for and seek after. That was not God's desire at all. God desired that men gave thanks for his wonderful works out of a place of recognition. Again, I think of being a parent with a child. You, you teach your children things to help them understand just realities of life. But a simple thing I remember teaching our kids when they were young was simply to say thank you. And again, as they were very early on in their lives, barely knowing how to talk, to say thank you when somebody gave them something, they didn't really understood it. 
but what we wanted to instill in them, that there was a necessary exchange of, of somebody giving you something and being grateful for it. And as a parent, you begin to, to be warmed and encouraged when you see that, that just that word exchange becomes something that's a matter of the heart when the children really understand what it is to be given something and they truly say things from the heart. The Lord's heart is warmed, if you will, when he sees his people appreciate, when he understands and receives that thanksgiving that he is due, not again because he wants his ego stroked, but because he loves. And again, as a parent loves a child and wants them to grow, understand, and appreciate the goodness of that relationship, so too the Lord wants us to understand the goodness of his works, his wonderful works to men, and he tells us to declare those to other. Again, we can go to the New Testament and we can see a couple examples that affirm this same thought to us in Hebrews thirteen, fifteen. It says, Therefore by him let us continually offer <clears throat> the sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of our lips, the giving of thanks to his name. We could go over to Romans in chapter twelve. Again, the, the word thanks thankfulness isn't in this passage, but we see a thankfulness by the surrendering, by the actions by the, the service to the Lord. In Romans 12.1, it says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Again, let us always be ready to give thanks to the Lord, to praise him with the fruit of our lips. Even when it hurts, we can praise him still. We can present our bodies to him Because he is good and he is worthy. Going on in verse 9 of our opening text, Jonah says, I will pay that which I have vowed. I'm not exactly sure what Jonah vowed here, nor the sailors who also offered a vow back in chapter 1. But vows were essentially voluntary promises, which once once made were to be kept if the thing vowed was acceptable and right. They were made under a great variety of circumstances, with some being kept and others broken, as we read all throughout Scripture. Again, just in the natural, a promise or a guarantee is really only as good as the person who makes it. I could have a lifetime warranty from a company for a product I bought, and if that company goes out of business, how good is that lifetime warranty? It's essentially void because there's no one to back it up. Again, when man makes vows... If we make it on our own, if we promise something empty and try to fulfill it with our flesh, we know that we will fail. Again, I I can just think of examples in my life. Uh, I've mentioned my dad multiple times, and he promised to us multiple times that he would stop drinking, that he would never drink again, and he failed over and over and over again because he couldn't do it on his own. He truly needed a deliverance from the Lord from this addiction which he was fighting. He would vow, I love you guys so much, I won't do this because I know that it hurts you. But yet he failed. A broken promise is, is only, a promise made is only as good as the person who's making it, or the company, or the thing, or whatever it may be. In our lives, the Lord doesn't desire for us to promise him things. I could promise the Lord, I will never sin again, I will never disobey again. How many in this room think that I will keep that promise to the Lord? Thanks for the vote of confidence. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Well, we'll just close there this morning. I didn't raise my hand either because I know I'm going to fail. I know I'm going to fall short. 
I know that I'm going to be susceptible to that Romans 7 battle that Paul mentions. We have a flesh again. And it's not just a, an excuse to say, well, I've got to sin a little bit each day because I still have this flesh. It's a surrendering to the Lord, knowing that when I fail, God will prevail. Spiritually speaking, we understand that God desires obedience rather than sacrifice. God could care less about my promises. He cares about my heart. He cares about your heart, a heart that's separated unto him, not just a checking of boxes, not just a going through motions, but a life that is lived faithfully to him. For the just shall live by faith. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Jonah was in a deep place of struggle. He was a godly man. We've understood this. We've established this. God spoke to him and used him. But in this moment, he was struggling. He had failed. God used this time in the belly of the fish to show him, to teach him. And through it, Jonah realized, he learned, he understood, he remembered the faithfulness of God. Jonah made this vow and he gave thanksgiving to the Lord. But again, we understand and we'll come to in chapters 3 and 4 and see the struggle continue for Jonah. So again, it's not about making a vow. It's not about making a promise to Jonah or for us. It's about surrendering our hearts to him. The Lord desires to do a work in Jonah. He desires to do a work in us that the spirit might transform us and change us and allow us to bear fruit. Again, we see as Jonah concludes his prayer, he exclaims, salvation is of the Lord. The theme of the Bible, the redemption of mankind. What great irony is here. Jonah in the belly of this fish in the depths of the sea proclaiming this great truth. But it was the knowledge of this truth that led him to that very place because he didn't want to proclaim salvation is of the Lord to his enemy, to the Ninevites. And it put him in a place where ironically now he needed that same mercy, that same great, that same deliverance that he was reluctant to preach to the Ninevites. David in Psalm 68 We can turn over there quickly in Psalm 68, verses 19 through 20. David writes, Blessed be the Lord who daily loads us with benefit, the God of our salvation, Selah. Our God is the God of salvation, and to God the Lord belongs escapes from death. In the New Testament, Peter exclaims it this way, Nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven among men by which we must be saved. Salvation is of the Lord, Jonah proclaims. Salvation is by God, as we know today alone through Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, the only name under heaven by which man can be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jonah didn't know this scripture, but he knew the God who would proclaim it. This chapter ends, we'll go back to Jonah 2 and just read verse 10. It's the exact opposite of how chapter 1 ended. In Jonah 2.10 it said, So the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Chapter 1 ended with Jonah being cast into the sea and swallowed by this great fish. Here we see him coming out of the fish back to dry land. Again, the Lord spoke to the fish here, and the fish listened. Again, what a contrast to this animal listening and surrendering to the Lord's leading, guiding, direction, his word. Contrast that with Jonah's response when God spoke to him of ignoring and fleeing. Again, we can think of Balaam where Peter exclaimed in, in Second Peter, he said, 
He was rebuked for his inequity, a dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of that prophet. How sad it is that animals at times can listen better than us. This great fish did as the Lord instructed. Simple obedience, again, just an example in that little interchange, is what the Lord desires. When he speaks, he desires for us to listen. The chapter concludes by showing, affirming Jonah's last point, that salvation is of the Lord. What the sailors were unable to do as they struggled to save Jonah, God did. The omnipotent God who sent the storm caused the lot to fall on Jonah, calmed the sea, and appointed the fish to swallow Jonah, also completed his deliverance and back on to dry land. And again, as I was reading this last verse here in chapter, or verse 10 of chapter 2, it says it vomited him back onto dry land. And I thought that was an interesting point there, that he went back onto dry land. The fish didn't vomit Jonah 10 yards from the shore and make him swim the rest of the way. When the Lord does a work, when the Lord, the God of salvation, finishes a work, it is finished. He put Jonah back onto dry land. He didn't have to swim part of the way. There's no effort on our part to earn any part of our salvation. Jonah was not worthy. He didn't have to prove his might in swimming the last 20 meters to the shoreline. The Lord vomited him, or the fish vomited him back onto dry land. The work is finished. Our salvation is finished. Redemption is finished by the Lord's work alone. As we transition now into chapter 3, my mind wonders, where did Jonah land? Did he land back in Joppa? Did he have to see those sailors who had thrown him overboard again? No need to waste time thinking about that, but my mind wonders, what exactly happened when Jonah hit dry land? And that testimony, in my mind, begins then. Jonah certainly interacted with people. He still had a journey to go back to Nineveh, And no doubt people would have seen him, heard what happened, and that was opportunity for people to see Jonah's life change, to see the Lord bring beauty from ashes. Let's get into chapter 3 now. Spend just a few minutes in these first few verses of Jonah chapter 3. In Jonah 3, 1 through 3, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. Again, the same direction that God gave Jonah back in chapter 1, go and preach. The Lord doesn't need us to do his work, but he's allowing Jonah, again, the opportunity to be a partaker of his work, a partaker of the divine nature that he still allows for us today. Again, I think of Peter quickly. I'll just put this up there. The the perfect example of second chances in the New Testament. Again, when he failed the Lord, the Lord spoke to him. In verse 15 it says, So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. And we know that exchange goes back and forth a couple of times there. Peter was warned about the struggle to come, and he said, No, never, never will I forsake you. I will die for you, Lord. And again, we know Peter failed miserably. Jesus was teaching Peter, he's teaching us, he's teaching Jonah that our flesh is nothing good. It's nothing able. Despite what we may vow, despite what we may look to or turn to, there is no good thing in our flesh. And it serves us well to remember that. God's grace is beyond measure, but that doesn't give us license to just do as we will. There's still a surrendering to him, a seeking him, a looking out for him. 
Again, he wants our words and our actions. I'll just read this, uh, this last scripture to you here briefly. Again, this parable that, that Jesus is speaking of the two sons in Matthew 21. It says, well, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work for me today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not, but afterward he regretted it and went. Then he came a second time, then he came to the second and said likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said to him, The first. Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. Much to unpack in that, that scripture there. But again, we see the Lord's not interested in our words alone. This first son who said, I, I will go, but he didn't, and then he regretted it and went. That's the one who ultimately did the will of his, of his father. Our hearts can say all the right things, but if our hearts go our own way, we're not doing as the Lord calls us to do. We're not doing as he instructs us to do. He gives clear direction again. He does to Jonah here again. Go and preach. Preach means to call out, to cry, to proclaim. It's that same word that Jonah used or that the Lord used in verse 2 of chapter 1 where it's translated cry out against Nineveh. Here it's translated preach to them. Proclaim to them. Whether they hear it or not, whether they're your enemies or not, whether they like you or not, preach. Be ready in season and out of season. Jonah's task was difficult, no doubt about it. The Lord, too, tells us to speak to our enemies. We don't have time to flip there this morning, but if you want to write it down, in Matthew five forty-three through 45, it says, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who use you and spitefully persecute, or excuse me, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Again, in our own lives, that's a challenging thing to do with those who we, we just don't like at times, those who irritate us, annoy us, to pray for them, those who spitefully use you, to pray for them because they need the Lord. We all need the Lord to show the love of Christ, to not be overcome by, by evil, but to overcome evil with good. This is what Jonah was called to do here. Jonah arose and he went there in verse 3. He was a well-suited instrument for proclaiming these judgments against Nineveh yet the hope and mercy on repentance because he had just lived it himself. A living example of both judgment in the belly of the fish, the entombment that he faced, and mercy on his repentance and the deliverance back on to dry ground. Jonah went to this great city, and this time he preached, and that's where we will pick up in our next lesson.